Welcome one and all, I'm Chris Stone, the Virtual Agile Coach, and this is the Virtually Agile Podcast, the pod that shares conversations with Agile thought leaders, as well as amplifying newer voices. You'll hear about agility, virtual working, and everything in between. If you find value in listening, don't forget to follow or subscribe on your platform of choice. It is the very best way to hear about the latest episodes as they land. Enjoy the show. Okay, so fellow Agilists, welcome to season two and the latest installments of the Virtually Agile videocast. As a firm believer in neurodiversity and amplifying the voices of those seldom heard, each eight episode season of the videocast will feature four established voices as well as four newer voices. Now, today's guest needs no introduction. We are kicking off season two in style. Watchers of the show will know how passionate I am about retrospective, so I've been looking forward to this guest for quite a while. She's known alongside Esther Darby as a goddess of retrospectives, <laughs> co-founder of the Agile Fluency Project and advisor to Retrium. I'm pleased to welcome Diana Larson. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be here. So first question I always ask any guest, just firstly, how are you today? I'm, I'm doing very well today. Thank you so much. I've, I've been very fortunate all through the pandemic to weather it well and um, in a good situation. So, so things are going well for me here. Wonderful to hear. Now, um, given that the theme of the video cast is about amplifying new voices, who do you think uh, is doing some great work out there? Who's, whose voice should be heard? Who should I perhaps reach out to and get involved in the show, Diane? Well, Jay Allen Morris and Kristen Clancy, uh, who, both, who together wrote the book, The Retrospective Facilitator, I think are out there giving all of us some great ideas for, you know, for how to move those, that forward and how to do a better job on things like retrospectives and all the other meetings that we have online. And the other person who comes to mind is Enrico Teotti, who um, in the last several years has just, be, has just really zoomed to the forefront of my mind when I think about particularly online retrospectives. He, um, he is the director of the Agile Alliance's uh, Principle 12 member initiative. And he also has a podcast called This is Retrospective Facilitation that... Um, so I think the two of you would have a lot to talk about as well. It sounds like he and I should connect <laughs> and definitely think we'd have a lot to talk about. Uh, and, uh, yeah, retrospectives, I think, are definitely my, my favorite ceremony. And the, the reason being is just that it's just a wonderful opportunity as a team just to take a step back and, and reflect, but also take yourself forward as well to a, a future state and just imagine where you could be. So I'm a huge fan. And obviously you are co-author of one of the seminal books on on retrospectives agile retrospectives making good teams great fantastic title which was written in 2006 i believe it was, yeah it was published in 2006 it took us about two years to write it so um we had we uh, it was a it was an interesting journey but yeah the it published in the summer of 2006 okay. so it's almost 15 years old almost i mean given given the uh the time of publishing and the the, the era we were in back then Obviously, the book is like a bit of a, a pocket guide and saying how to do and how to facilitate this. And this is that this is yeah. a format you could try. And these are the materials you could do. It literally goes down to the detail of what, what materials yeah. you need on the day and, and what outcomes you're looking for. And it's obviously lending itself to the, the physical environment, everyone being co-located. Right. Right. So have you have you have you perhaps thought of updating it for the for the virtual environments, or is it that you've seen 
the flame being carried on by some of those great people you mentioned earlier in terms of the remote world? Well, we've seen the flame being carried on. That is absolutely true. But I'm happy to announce that just last week, Esther and uh, David Horowitz uh, and I signed a contract to write a second edition of the Agile Retrospectives book. So with David's involvement, we'll definitely have quite a bit more about retrospectives with teams that are working remotely, working virtually, um, as well as other kinds of things that Esther and I have just learned along the way in the past 15 years. We've learned a couple of things. I mean, you'd hope you would learn a few things in 15 (laughs) years, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a book all about learning, right? Yeah. So, um, so we will be adding in, we, we think we're estimating that it's, we're probably going to uh, increase the amount of material in it by probably at least half uh, and, and maybe more than that. Uh, there's just a lot more to talk about um, now that we've seen so many different teams doing retrospectives and um, some of them getting benefit from them, some of them holding a meeting that they're calling retrospectives that they don't get any benefit from. Mm. And, and um, so some advice around that as well. So uh, we're, we've just, we're hard at work. And um, our estimated, right now, estimated publication date is probably sometime next um, February, March, April in that time frame. Interesting. One to, one to look out for then. Yeah. Uh, what I, one of my observations, having transitioned to more of a, a virtual coach, and I guess that's that's my moniker, the virtual agile coach. I, I, I specialize yeah. in how to enable teams to be successful regardless of where they are located, you know, mm-hmm. geographically distributed and things. One of my observations as someone who's often facilitating meetings, whether that's a, a retrospective or anything else, is just the the reduction in preparation time because in the in the old days let's say the old days it wasn't it wasn't that long ago but not not that long ago you'd have to have all of your materials set aside you'd have to perhaps draw loads of things out on certain um mm-hmm. flip charts and things like that whereas nowadays with with certain remote tools out there i think we're thinking lots of miro mural and miro and all those distributed whiteboards you can basically create this templated retrospective save so to speak and just duplicate it and share it. And then others can access it really easy just for a few clicks of a button. So mm-hmm. almost your, your prep time, once you've created this initial concept is, is drastically reduced, which I know from my perspective makes things easier. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested on to hear from you about what you feel is a good length for retrospectives. Is there any, is there any sort of time frame that you, you subscribe to through, through your experience? Well, for me, it has to do with a number of things. Uh, First and foremost is how big is the team? Mm -hmm. Um, What we're trying to do in a retrospective is take people through a learning and thinking and deciding process together so that, you know, it's sort of the the team becomes one mind, Mm -hmm. so, so to speak. And so the thing that an individual can do in really literally a split second, um, kind of be going along, thinking about their life, thinking about their environment, sort of setting the stage for noticing something and then seeing something in their environment that isn't the way they want it to be or that they think they could improve in some way, 
noticing that, looking at some information about that, um, just thinking about how they'd like it to be different and then deciding to make a move, um, that happens in you know, a split second in the, in the human brain. But when you've got a group of people and you want to move them all through that exact same human decision-making process together, it just takes longer. So, um, so you know, a three-person retrospective versus a nine-person retrospective, you're going to have to adjust the amount of time that you spend because there's just more brains involved, more people to get in sync. And then also it depends on the length of time you're looking at. Are you looking at a one-week sprint? Are you looking at a two-week sprint? Are you looking at a, a major release um, that is, you know, maybe stretches over months? That also changes the amount of time that you would want to use in the retrospective. And then the third thing is, has there been conflict or controversy or, or uh, extraordinary challenges that, that aren't sort of the, the normal workplace challenges that we see, but have you had much more difficulty with tools than anybody expected? Or, you know, all of those kinds of things that also can cause you to need to add time to your retrospective. So if I'm looking at a uh, seven to eight person team, or maybe even five to eight person team. And we've had it, we've got a two week sprint or a two week iteration. And we're, uh, you know, we've had kind of the normal sticky points and, but nothing, nothing big has happened. I'm probably, and, and because we're going to be remote, and so people are going to need some additional thinking time, and we're going to need to use some other processes. Um, I'm probably going to start with like 75 minutes. And then after a couple of times of that, uh, I will know if I can reduce that a bit for this group. Have they really take it to it really well, and maybe I'll reduce that down to a 50 minute or 55 minutes to, to always give a break between uh, retros time for the retrospective. Or if we encounter some, something that makes the, the focus question more complex, I might bump it up to an hour and a half. So I, you know, I, I tend to start from about the, the 75 minute timeline and then adjust from there because in my experience, to get people to take a few minutes to set the stage, to get people's head in the room, and then do a good job of examining what happened and doing the data gathering, doing a good job of uh, figuring out what that means to us, what, how do we interpret that data, and, and what are some ideas we have about how we'd like to move it forward, and then actually if you do a good job of those two, then actually making the decision about what to do going forward in the team usually doesn't take as much time as you might think. And then we need a little time to close the retrospective. You're pretty much at 75 minutes. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a great, great answer. And you've, you've reflected on some of the, the many variables which would influence the right. duration of a retrospective. Right. Well, and so and, there's no one size fits all solution, right? Right. And 
for teams that are doing mob or ensemble programming, and they're having what a lot of them are calling micro retros after every Pomodoro, after every 20 minutes, well, that's a three minute retrospective, Yeah. right? Because mob ensemble teams tend to be a bit smaller. They tend to be more three to five. They're only looking at 25 minutes. They've got a good process for going through that. And they, you know, they want to get to their Pomodoro break. So, you know, they can, they can do a very quick kind of look at, look back at the 25 minutes, anything happened that we want to adjust, but we're only planning to adjust it for the next 25 minutes to see if it's something we want to do long-term or not. Uh, they can get through that very quickly. So, you know, this consultant answer it depends it depends <laughs> knew it was going to come up it depends um yeah. i guess what, what, what i like there is again you, you've highlighted the the range of possibilities that could occur and and, and yeah. the, the the most extreme example there was the it could be a three-minute retro right it could it yeah. could be that your your team's feedback loop is so small that, and so iterative that actually they don't need to wait to wait for a few weeks later yeah. to bring it up they could bring it up as as they come along and Again, sometimes I, I've, I've worked with teams that say, well, why do we need to wait for a retrospect in two weeks time? Maybe it's that you add a question to their daily standup saying, is there anything new we've tried differently today? And that, and that works for them and their situation. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly- I hear about, sorry, I hear about more and more teams that are doing an, uh, end or beginning of day retrospectives, just very 15, 20 minutes. Uh, and yeah, so that works too, for sure. Depends on the team and what works for them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So interesting, my, my personal answer on this, again, uh, or I guess not, not so my personal answer, but the type of retrospectives I tend to do are more the, the every two week sort of duration ones. Yeah. And for me, I, I, I tend to have a bias towards a little less conversation, a lot more action, to quote, mm-hmm. to quote, to quote Elvis. And so what my, uh, the retrospectives that I tend to facilitate are usually around the 45 minutes to an hour range. And but that is based mm-hmm. on a shorter time frame. It's not a, a major release. It's it's probably a more mature team that are used to doing it. Right. So it's not some a, a team that's new to yeah. doing this. Doesn't you know, there's there's more inbuilt maturity and context and stage setting that's kind of there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you need less time to yeah you need less time to set the stage, less time to get their heads in the room. They show up ready to dive into the retrospective. You probably let them know what the focus is going to be ahead of time. So you don't have to discuss that at all. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that makes, that makes perfect sense. For, for teams who are experienced with doing retrospectives and, and team members who develop some skill in how to participate mm. uh, and how to be good participants and, and get their ideas out and discuss collaboratively and not be at loggerheads with each other and those kinds of things. So yeah, that, that time frame makes perfect sense for that stuff yeah. uh next, next question i have for you it does center around retrospective still the obviously the, the pandemic has brought about uh, a major shift towards the, the majority of people in a, a knowledge working world working remotely and of course this brings in, into fruition more retrospectives being done virtually remotely using various tools what in your view would you say is the biggest challenge or, or difference that a team that may have been used to doing retrospectives face-to-face or face when that is now in a virtual environment instead? I think they'll face the same challenge. I think a lot of them will face the same challenge that I faced, 
when we all moved into, I mean, at Agile Fluency Project, we've been doing workshops online for some time since, I don't know, 2015, 2017, something like that. So, um, but when I got uh, faced with working from home and everything being online and all the meetings that I needed to facilitate being online, um, my first thought was how do I replicate the in-person environment in the online environment? And the one thing I, and I learned very quickly, I, I think, I, I thought felt quick to me, <laughs> Um, that to what I call the carob and chocolate analogy, right? I really like in-person meetings. I really like chocolate, but now somebody's handing me this new thing. They're handing me a chunk of carob, right? <laughs> and they're saying, hey, this, you can use this just like you use chocolate, right? It's, you know, and I took a bite and it's like, no, this isn't like chocolate at all, right? And online meetings aren't like in-person meetings in many ways. So what I learned with carob and chocolate is if I'm going to eat carob, I have to like carob for its own sake. I can't be trying to make it into something it isn't. And so uh, what I began to do fairly early on was start looking at what are the things that we can do online that are special to online, that are unique to online, that we couldn't have done in an in-person workshop. And the, my first epiphany around this was I was in a meeting with a, a lot, bunch of people, there must have been 20 to 25 people in the meeting. So we had a complete gallery Zoom view, right? And the facilitator asked a, a question that was kind of a do you or don't you kind of question, right? And she said, if you do whatever it was, take a sticky note and put it over your camera. So like this, right? Yep. So, right. And she, and, and I saw that she immediately got a, an overall view of where everybody in the meeting stood, kind of what was the proportion of people who did it versus who didn't and could on the fly adjust what she was going to do next based on that feedback. Plus we had been sitting online for a little while and you know, staring at each other in this gallery view, which is really unhuman, right? We never, we never sit in a meeting room together and all stare at each other all at once. We only look at the person who's speaking, right? So um, the other thing I noticed was that moment of relief that I felt to all of a sudden seeing this gallery that turned into a mosaic of all these, because everybody has different color sticky notes on their desk. So, so it was all these, it looked like a quilt. The other ones look. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, um, so from then on, I began thinking about what is it that I can do in this virtual remote way of working that is unique and special to it and, uh, and what can I incorporate in my retrospectives and my workshops and in other things that I do that take advantage of 
what's going on here without getting too, um, too embroiled in the, in the tools and technology, but remembering that human problems and human challenges need human solutions. Mm. You know, what, what can I adjust? So I be started to become very alert to any instances of that sort of thing that I encountered and sort of incorporating those into my toolbox. Very nice. So, yeah. I think I've gone, gone over a, a similar journey uh, in learning yeah. how to create an experience that's virtual, not just replicating what happened in face-to-face -face and just trying to copy and paste it into a virtual environment. There are, there right. are lots of variables in play which, diff which, uh, which cause different challenges. There's different dynamics. You know, you, you've got the fact that when, often if you're using a, a virtual whiteboard, for example, and people are adding things anonymously, there's almost a greater level of psychological safety because no one can actually see who was the one who wrote that. And then they, they can only, well, they, they only have to speak up about it if they feel comfortable doing so. So it almost escalates the level of psychological safety you can have. Um, there's, there's things you can do, do with just making uh, the experience of collectively just making a decision even more immersive. So I, I tend to create a lot of themed retrospectives, you know, whether that's Friends, the TV show, Pirates of the Caribbean, Taco Tuesday, like Mike Cohen ch ch challenged me to do. And it meant that when it came to dot voting to down select and move towards a consensus, you can dot vote with little tacos. And it just, it yeah. just you couldn't do that face to face yeah. or not easily. Right. So it just there's lots of little things you can do that just uh, make it a, make it a better virtual experience. And right. I guess you've got to reflect that. And this is I think why I have a bias towards shorter retrospectives. We're not designed to just be looking at a screen all the time, right. and our attention spans, in fact, are not designed for that level of continued right. focus. So this is why I tend right. to shorten retrospectives. I'd rather have a shorter retrospective that was good and yeah. made sense for the people, rather than a long one where by the end of it, people are getting a bit tired and unproductive and needing a break and, and yeah. that sort of thing yeah so before when i was talking about the 75 minute or hour and a half retrospective when i do that i build in a lot of screen off time mm -hmm. uh, i make sure that we have activities where we're seeing each other and interacting with each other but then also times when the screen is off so we get that bit of relief there mm -hmm. too and um, and even a break, you know, get up and and I will and I will have physical breaks. We will have um, turn off your screen and have a dance party, or uh, you know, get up and walk around your desk three times, or you know, so um, short things, but that help to mitigate that unremitting time on the screen staring at a block of 12 other people sure. you know that sort of thing yeah that it, it has to be that's that's one of the things of, that I consider sort of the human problems that we need to find human solutions to and not always technical or technology or tool yeah. solutions to so I've been I've interestingly been exploring with how to uh, what well, experiment with the range of senses you can invoke from a retrospective yes. so yes. rather than it just being um, you're looking at a few words and you're you're writing a I want to stop, start, continue. Why right. why can't it be, hey, go to the kitchen and grab an object which you think represents the last iteration and explain why? Just something kinetic, getting people up and moving. Yes. Um, maybe it's uh we're doing a, a retrospective on Queen the Rock Band and it's it's we will rock you. What kudos do we want to celebrate? And you're playing the music in the background as you do it and creating a bit of atmosphere. 
uh, trying to explore how you can use a range of senses rather than just looking at a screen and, and absolutely absolutely yeah uh, again i, I find sure. that helps with creates something a bit more immersive and engaging so i think people who are engaged in the retrospective are probably gonna get a better outcome yeah. at least in my experience yeah for sure yeah i'm interested to talk with you about retroing the retro and i think you kind of alluded to it earlier how, how do we how do we know that a retrospective is delivering value is is proving as useful as it can be are there any techniques you subscribe to in order to ensure that retros themselves are being continuously improved yeah well one thing i do uh and that we we recommended of 15 years ago in the book is as part of closing the retrospective always take a moment just a, a brief time to actually get some feedback on how did that retrospective go? So for the facilitator and actually even for the participants to kind of take that time to reflect on, um, you know, well, what, what, what was this retrospective like for me? And did I get what I hoped to get out of it? And do I have any ideas about how this facilitator could improve things next time? That's feedback. It's not another whole retrospective. But it's a little bit of feedback that you know, we all need uh, to be able to, then we can go away and do our own retrospective on the experience and make some choices about how we want to improve moving forward. So I think that's really important. And I think it gets left out of a lot of retrospectives. And then also, I think there's always the opportunity to have how can we get more out of our retrospectives as a retrospective focus from time to time? And particularly if it seems like the energy toward moving into improvement actions or even the energy toward thinking about, you know, what we really excel at and what can we do to make sure we don't lose <laughs> any of that momentum. Um, whatever that might be, you know, if that just stop, starts having much juice to it, then it's time to say, okay, you know, our, our, our improvement efforts are, are falling off or just losing juice for us. What, what do we need to do to regain the energy around becoming a truly the greatest team we can be together? Because retrospectives are a wonderful tool for becoming the greatest team we can ever be together. And, um, and so kind of re-energizing that through focusing back on how our retrospective has been going and what would we like them to be in the future. Completely agree. Retrospectives are that wonderful technique to just check in as a team. How can we, how can we be better? How can we be the best yeah. team we can be? I've, inc I've been increasingly experimenting with using well, I guess what you've just you've just described as at the end of a retrospective in the in the summary portion, a bit of a, a quick feedback loop at the end. And I tend to use a yeah. fist of five. So I tend to yeah. say, right, rate this retrospective. And will you it will be based on the theme. So if it's Pirates of the Caribbean, you're using a piece of eight to rep, you know, five or one pieces of eight. And one means kind of not everyone in the team attended and you might have identified some action improvements, but no one's owning them and that sort of thing. Whereas five is everyone felt safe to speak out without fear of judgment. Oh, you know, actions were identified and they were owned. Um, the time box was respected, kind of driving the good behaviors. And it allows the team at the end to say, well, this is more of a three. So next time when we do this again, okay, we need to try and think about how we can hit that five. Right, 
Right. Like I, it, try, it tries, I think, for me, it's something I'm experimenting with. I'm liking it so far. It seems we get good, getting good feedback. I think it's mm-hmm. helping to build in by setting the expectation at the beginning what a good retro looks like, yeah. what behaviors yeah. we want to demonstrate within it. And I also love the uh, Norm Kurth's retro prime directive as a setting yes. the stage starting point. We're here for unconditional positive regard. We don't care about blame. Set the stage there and then wrap yeah. up the end with a how, how, do we do, how do we get on? Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, so a little bit beyond retrospect, I think you, you alluded earlier to the Agile Fluency Project and I understand your, your role within that is chief connector. Yes. So I'm, I'm keen to understand a bit more about that role and um, yes. what the Fluency Project entails. Well, um, when we formed the Agile Fluency Project, uh, James Shore and I, and, and we had uh, one other partner at the time, um, th- you know, we, we talked about, you know, do we need job, you know, when, we, when it, we made it into an actual formal business with our, you know, governmental registration and all that stuff. So, you know, we had, we faced the question, uh, you know, what do we, what, who's got what t- job title, what, you know, what do we want those to be? And, uh, you know, it's, it's was a very tiny company then and it's still small. And uh, so we said, you know, CEO, COO, that just seems like a lot of hubris. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we thought about, well, what titles would we like to have and what titles do we think fit each other? And so in the end, we ended up with James Shore is the chief improver and I'm the chief connector. So um, that means that I'm in charge of all of the things that have to do with the Agile Fluency Project that mean reaching out to folks, doing things like this podcast, making sure that our materials are accessible, uh, taking care of, uh, or taking care of supporting our community of licensed facilitators, making sure they have what they need to do, what they wanted, what they want and need to do. Um, all, all of that whole complex of marketing, sales, community management, um, kind of keeping things going that has to do with building relationships. That's sort of more in, I'm not that Jim doesn't do any of that, but I, I take the bulk of it and he takes the bulk of responsibility for where should we be improving our processes and, um, you know, what else do we need to do in that direction? So um, it actually, it, it is a good way of identifying our separate strengths and why we work well together as a team because we have enormous respect for each other. We value each other's capabilities. Um, I mean, I just think the world of him uh, and what he can do. And of course he's working on the second edition of his Art of Agile Development book too. That's another, another cool thing. And, um, and you know, our skills are so complementary that it really has helped us. And so the job titles just help us remember that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting title. I'm I'm seeing a, an increase in these sort of diverse or different job titles. Yeah. I'm seeing chief happiness officer. Um, yeah. That one put a smile on my face just just yeah. by just by seeing it. And you know, I, I like that because I I interesting had a conversation with someone recently and they said, "Oh, I'm a full stack agile coach." And I was like, "Well, what does that mean?" And I said, "Well, I kind of I'm a bit broad across many things. I'm not a technical agile coach. I'm not a, a people focused agile coach. I'm just kind of a bit of everything." And I thought, "Well." 
if under that logic, I'm definitely more of a people focused agile coach. I try and I try and create an architect and environment where people are enjoying themselves as much as possible, believing that that will result in better, better outcomes. So if, if there was a, a role that I could have that was beyond an agile coach, it would be a chief happiness officer. But yeah, interesting to hear chief, chief connector out there. Right. Well, and I think, I think that's a, it's a useful thing. So some people have that ability, I guess, to be what this person called a full stack agile coach. But most of us, I think, learn, lean more toward the human process, work process side, that sort of thing. And, and others lean more toward the technical side. And where we don't have the skill or inclination to try to be all things, um, like your full stack person said he, they wanted to be, um, then it helps you understand where you want to create partnerships in your network. Mm -hmm. Because a team that you're working with as a, as a, um, as a more, more teamness oriented uh, coach might need to have someone that they can regularly reach out to around technical issues that come up and vice versa. So I think that that it gives us the opportunity to sort of cross pollinate in our uh, ad, in our coaching communities uh, around those things. Wonderful. And again, back to neurodiversity creates yeah. innovation, creates great results. Right. Right. So I'd like you to offer some advice to listeners, to anyone who facilitates retrospectives, to anyone that's to up their game in retrospectives from one of the goddesses of retrospectives. What would be the most important thing that you would advise someone to do or try doing or improve upon to enable them yeah. to make a retrospective as successful, as successful as it can be? Well, I think one of the things that has been coming up for me a lot lately is the number of people who say to me, well, we hold these retrospective meetings and, um, and then nothing happens. There's no follow through. And I hear this from scrum masters. I hear this from team members. I hear this from coaches. I hear this from managers. Should I really be giving people the time to do this? Uh, as if that giving them the time is a thing. But, um, but so I think in some ways I have been over the last many years when it was kind of an assumed thing for me before, the more I have heard this kind of feedback the more I realize that we need to make it explicit that in addition to the five steps, set the stage, gather data, generate insights, et cetera, there is a sixth step in retrospectives. And that is we have to take, we have to have an action item or a, an intention of some kind that comes out of our retrospective. And then we have to follow through on it. And if we're not doing that, if we're not identifying that thing we're gonna follow through on and then doing that as a part of our team, we haven't really done a retrospective. We've had a meeting and we may have had some nice venting time and we may, some other things may have happened. We may have made two lovely lists of things that have worked well and things we'd like to do differently. But when we just leave them there, nothing happens. And that means that meeting starts verging on being a real waste of everybody's time. And that's expensive when we're thinking about what it costs to 
uh, have developers on a team and, you know, they're, you know, what they're getting paid and their comp their benefits that they get, their hourly rate is quite high. And we need to ensure that every meeting that they are in has a valuable outcome commensurate with the value that they're investing in that meeting. And so we need that follow through. And so if you're not going to follow through, stop having your retrospective meetings. You know, I mean, because they're, they're a waste of everybody's time and they demoralize people because they pretend they're not going to be a waste of time. And then they turn out that they are right. So, um, so that's a, that's a big thing. I, I think drive toward ensuring that you're actually making some progress. And I had somebody yesterday in a workshop say, well, should we keep a list of all the intentions or, or action items that we have uh, come up with for every retrospective? Should we, should we keep a log of that? And I said, no, you do it. You pick one thing and do it. And then you don't have to keep track of it. You know if it worked or if it didn't. If it worked, well, then you figure out how you're going to keep doing that thing. If it didn't work, let it go and move on to the next thing that you think might be an improvement. You don't, there's, that's, you know, let's, let's not make busy work for anybody, certainly not for scrum masters or agile coaches to keep track of things that don't need to be keep track of. And for me, it's the parallel to bug trackers. You know, the thing you do with the bug is you fix it. You don't track it, right? That, 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 you know, you, you, you assess it. You say, is this worth fixing or not? Is it causing enough problem that really does need to be fixed? And then if it is, you fix it. And if it's not, you let it go. Right? <laughs> and so the same thing with the action items that come out of retrospectives. You, you, either, you either take care of them or you, or, or you let them go. You don't track them. Mm. Right? That, that resonates so heavily with me and it alludes back to what I was saying earlier. Yeah. I have a bias towards action. I, yeah. I say a little less conversation, a little more action, right? It's all good right. talking about things, but unless we're doing something about them, odds right. are, We'll be complaining about the same things in a few weeks' time anyway. Right, right. So I, I build the templates and the, the the retrospective experiences that I facilitate for others and share with others in a way that architects and drives towards those three to five maximum actions or experiments they can try next yeah. that they can check in with later. And yeah. if it's working, amplify it. If it's not working, dampen it, try something yeah. new. If yeah. we're not doing something, odds are we're going to be complaining about it in the future. Yeah. So I think it's really, right. really very important. Yeah. Down to the final few questions now. I'm very keen to understand what is your favorite retrospective format? If there was one above all that you love. You know, I don't have a favorite retrospective format. I like the variety. So I like being able to do different things all the time. Um, lately, I've been uh, looking at so I can tell you my latest favorite thing to look at in retrospectives, and that is another one of those human solutions to a human problem instead of technical. 
And that is the people I found it a couple of different places. I found it at connectus.org and I found it in this new book I just got about rituals for virtual meeting. The idea of hand signs or uh, signals that we do as humans. So where this really doesn't tell anybody that I've raised my hand because you can barely see it. If I want to talk next and I do this, you even if there are 12 other people on the screen, you'll notice it. Yeah. If I really agree with something, that little tiny thumbs up is not nearly as good as mm -hmm. this. And this isn't nearly as good as something your team invents for itself. So I think, you know, for one thing, when you were talking about keeping engagement, making, helping team members understand more about how to engage with other people on screen. Oh, I really feel your pain. Mm. Oh yeah, I've experienced that same thing too. Uh, I'd like to build on that point that you just made. You know, you, if your team can come up with their own signs and symbols for the nonverbals that they would like to be able to exchange, that's extraordinarily powerful. And it gets people leaning forward in their seats and not back here, yeah. waiting it out, right? So, um, so that's my latest favorite thing is figuring out how to incorporate that sort of thing into my into the retrospectives that I do and um, as more than having a whole template that I always follow because I, sure. I never do the same retrospective twice. I'm the same. So I, I, I've created some almost 50 new themed retrospective templates now that yeah. are all, they're all out there. And I'll just go, right, this time I'm doing this one. In fact, what I do is I empower the team to choose the next one. So it's yeah. their decision, not mine. Right. And what I, what I loved there was you bringing in the, the kinetic elements to it, the physical yeah. movements. Um, when I've done uh, workshops teaching people my, my tips for, for doing virtual retrospectives, yeah. I tend to encourage celebrating a team's microculture and creating our own team's language. And whether that's, you know, yeah. rather than estimating in story points, they estimate in, well, this is a, a New York minute versus something really like an, an eon, you know, just yeah. whether it's something to do with a, a TV show or film they like. It's a, this is an Ant-Man versus a Hulk because it's massive, you know, yeah. just having their own language, um, again, can make it a bit more of a, immersive yeah. experience. And, and I think one other thing is that for, for people who are facilitating retrospectives, maybe the tip is find the tools that resonate most for you. I've learned to do some things on Miro and Mural and I've even taken classes in it. It, it doesn't, I, I don't connect with that. Um, so I find other things I could do. I use more breakouts in, mm -hmm. in zoom. I, you know, or whatever tool or whatever platform I'm in, I, I find other ways of doing that. I bring in the, like you say, the kinetic kind of things. Those are tools that I know that I can, um, do well. And I, and it will make it smooth. Other people are whizzes at mm -hmm. Miro and Mural and they create wonderful things. And, if, and that's working for them. Um, for new people, you know, Retrium, which gives you some pretty simple ways in, might be a tool of choice, right? So, um, so I think it's important for folks to figure out what's their set, what, need, what do they need to have in their toolbox 
and how they can make those things really sing, mm. uh, as opposed to trying to get everything in the world in their toolbox or thinking they should do the same retrospective that somebody else does. Sure. Um, but I do love that. I, I love the theme retrospectives. I think they're, I think they are a lot of fun. Um, and uh, I, I'm always happy to like see one of yours or a couple of other people that are doing that pop up on LinkedIn and I can go and look and see how they, how you did that. And, uh, that, that always looks like a lot of fun. I always wish I could be in those retrospectives. <laughs> well, this is interesting. It's like I, I get a lot of people who look forward to my retrospectives. I get yeah. people messaging me saying, oh, we did this for the first time with a program manager who never cracks a smile. And he did this queen retrospective. He admitted he loved the rock band and he connected with the content yeah. and he and he smiled and he engaged. And it's those sort of stories that, that yes. keep me doing it. And that's why, yes. why I'm, I, and I, actually, I enjoy it. I enjoy the right. creative outlet. Yeah. Final question then, and uh, it's one I ask all of my guests. You know I like creating these, these retrospective themes. So I've had suggestions such as Taco Tuesday from Mike Cohen, International Bat Appreciation Day from Tobias Mayer, Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> even. Diana, which new theme would you add to my backlog? Could be anything. I would add a trip to the woods. A trip to the woods. Okay, a, if you go down hike, to the woods day. <laughs> a hike, a hike in hike the woods. In. Okay. Yeah, uh, going out, what making the analogy between the retrospective and some aspect of being in nature. Like it. I'm a big, yeah. big, big fan of hiking. So yeah. I, I was fortunate enough pre-pandemic to be jaunting off around Yellowstone and Zion National Park whilst yeah. it was getting worse and worse. So I had some great time out yeah. in nature. Yeah. Wonderful right. themed retrospective. And thank you very much for appearing on the, video, the Virtually Agile videocast today. It's been a pleasure to have you to talk about retrospectives. Any right. final things you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I would just like to say that, that you know, retrospectives are great uh, for teams. I mean, I, obviously I, I believe in them fervently, but you can also use the, a retrospective type format to do some other kinds of things. And for example, the uh, assessment that we offer at the Agile Fluency Project, that assessment is built entirely around uh, the opportunity for the team to do a very robust retrospective on, on its own work. And, um, and I think there are other opportunities like that. And, and I think those those can be very powerful. And um, so I would just encourage people to think more broadly about the retrospectives they're doing, how the, the five steps might fit for other kinds of things they're trying to do, not just retrospectives, but um, maybe other kinds of decision meetings that they have to be in and so on. Fantastic parting message. Again, brilliant to have you here. Thank you for your time. All the best. Thank you. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.